And right then and there, I, I felt like, you know what, I, I want to become a famous rapper. I want to become known as one of the, you know, best Mexican Chicano rappers out there. So I started getting tattoos, got a gang tatted on me and my, my street name tatted on me. And in the back of my head, I said, this is what I need. I need the streets to know who I am. And I need the streets to know that I keep it real, that this music is, you know, I do it, but behind this music is a real gangster. There was a moment where my mom opened up to, to me and she had mentioned or brought up that she was dealing drugs. That was around the age of 15 and a half where we got the news. I felt um, a wind, I felt someone blowing from the top of my head all the way down, like this wind just as if someone just grabbed my heart and, and pulled it out and shoved a new heart in my chest. What's going on, everybody? God bless you. I am excited for you to hear, watch this new testimony. But I did want to let you know about some exciting news. We have partnered with multiple organizations, churches that are ready to help you through whatever you may be going through. Okay, now we've reached 50 million people all over the world and we have seen time and time and time again in the comment sections the needs. And, uh, and we prayed about this. We asked the Lord to, to guide us and to provide resources. And uh, thankfully, the Lord has answered and we have those resources for you. And so if you are in need of help, if you are in need of a church, if you are in need of community, if you just want to talk to somebody about struggles that you're going through or questions that you have, there will be a link in the comment section down below pinned at the top that you can click and then it will take you to a form where you can fill out your basic information and then somebody in your local community will contact you within 48 hours. We're really, really excited about this. So please take advantage of it if you need to. Okay. God bless you and enjoy the new testimony. Well, Luis, it's an honor to be in your hometown here in California. Yes. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, who've never seen you, mm -hmm. who are watching uh, on the other side of the screen right now, if you could just introduce yourself uh, for the people who are tuning in. Amen. My name is Luis Guerrero. I am 35 years old and I am an ex-Chicano rapper from San Diego, California. Luis, it's an honor again to, to be able to hear your testimony, to be able to record your testimony. Let's start with your life before Jesus, starting with your childhood. Uh, did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you know about Jesus? No, I did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, primarily, my family was or had a Catholic background, but we didn't know too much in depth about who Jesus was or, or why he had died on the cross. And so I, I didn't really have a religious family per se. Every other Sunday, maybe once a month, we will go to Catholic church, but we, we had nothing to do with, you know, having, you know, Catholicism or, and all of that. So uh, didn't really have a, a family that believed too much in, in, in the Lord. So tell us about your upbringing. What did it look like for you in your life growing up? Um, tell us a little bit about that. I was born and raised in San Diego, California. Um, there was two neighborhoods that I was I guess you can say brought up in, and one of them is known as 47 and, and Logan Avenue. And the other one where we spend a lot of time as well because of my grandma, it was in a very known neighborhood here in San Diego called Logan Heights. Grew up with my mom and my dad and my siblings. And at the age at about three, four years old, we started to see in our home violence. I would witness my dad beat up my mom. And we had those moments where we were trying to intervene as, as kids, three, four years old, my sister and I. And so a lot of the childhood memories as far as I can go were related to seeing that in our home. My dad just going after my mom 
and the room beating her up in the living room. And I do remember an environment where there was a lot of drinking involved. My dad used to be a musician and he was really known in Tijuana, Mexico, and even out here in San Diego. So he would sing in Mexican bands. So he was out and about a lot of the time. So I didn't really have that much of a relationship with him. But growing up, I do only have that memory where he would just beat up my mom. And at that early age, I began to develop hate. I began to develop frustration and anger which um, I did not know that was happening in my interior, right, in my heart. But as that began to happen, I began to hang out with different groups of friends, you can say, in that neighborhood. And so at a really early age, I started inclining into the streets or hanging out with, with homies, you know, eight, nine years old. And even at 10 years old, I remember being in elementary school. And at that age, I was already getting involved with what we call cliques or crews, you know, getting into fights in, in school. And, and, and we're talking elementary years, you know, um, tagging the walls and, and just being in that kind of environment with, with kids that were you know, with a bad background as mine and, and, and all they knew was, you know, game banging. I was brought up at such an early age with people that did not know how to, you know, show me that love in my own home. Uh, my mom struggled a lot with me because of my dad being gone, of course. So it was not easy for her. Uh, she would have two jobs at a time, you know, trying to sustain and help my, my sisters and I. It was not easy growing up. Um, we spent a lot of time at my grandma's house, and so she was like my, my second mom, you know, grandma. Um, in elementary, once I began to hang out with these kids, and then their loved ones were also gang-related, that's when I started really just kind of pushing towards becoming one of them. So at 13 years old, once I graduate from sixth grade and I move on to junior high, at 13 years old is when I got introduced to pornography. I knew nothing about it. And then they started introducing me to weed, to alcohol. And so my friends would bring drinks to school and, you know, we would get drunk in school campus. And once they started seeing that I was in their group, what started happening was they started to invite me to ditch. And so I would skip classes. I would skip um, school and I would go hang out with them and then I would smoke weed and I would drink until one day one of them told me, you know what, we want to make you part of our crew. And in that time, it, it wasn't just, uh, you know, a small little clique. We were talking about a lot of heads, a lot of crew members being involved. And I was 13 years old with that hate in my heart um, against my dad. And so at that age, you know, I joined my first gang. At 13 years old, I, I got jumped in, got beat up for one minute in school, and I was considered now an official gangster, an official uh, game banger. So at 13 years old, we're out there getting in riots, fighting uh, against other neighborhoods, you know, just really started getting into a lifestyle where there was a lot of use of, of drugs, and then came the introduction of having actual sexual relationships with with girls. And so during that whole time, 13, 14 years old, you know, I was in a trajectory um, where I was becoming someone that I feared, someone that I told myself I did not want to be. So at 14 years old, since I was one of the leads or one of the main heads in the, in the gang, they had me bring in a BB gun that looked like an actual 45 black gun and they made me bring it to school. And I was carrying that gun with me all day, flashing it around, telling people what I had. And somebody went and told the high school principal what I had in my backpack. And I remember it was about sixth, seventh period where they went and knocked at the, um, the classroom door. And the principal looked at me and said, you know, I want you to come out here and bring your backpack, please. Right then and there, I knew something was wrong. I knew someone had told on me. 
And I had a few friends there telling me, you know what, give me your backpack, just say you don't have it. But, you know, I felt in my heart the responsibility to just say, you know what, I, I have a weapon, I do. And so I stepped out of the classroom. They arrested me. They took me into the office. They called my mom two, three hours into that incident. I was taken to juvenile hall. So I was in juvenile hall for approximately three weeks. I do remember being in there and seeing my mom visit me for the very first time where it, it, it really hurt me. It really hit home because she looked destroyed. She looked broken. And, and when she walked in through those doors and sat with me, she said, you know, what are you thinking? What, what, what is it that you want to do because you're not going to accomplish anything by living this way or by doing the things you do? And in my mind, I was thinking, you know what, such thing like this um, is gonna cause a change in me. I'm gonna change for the better. I'm, I'm gonna stop this lifestyle, but it began to get worse, so. Luis, as a, really quick, as a, you mentioned that you didn't want to become that. Like you were becoming what you didn't want to become. Yes. As a child, and I'm not sure if you remember, but in that time, what is it that you desired? You know, what what was it that you were looking for as you were doing all of these things mm -hmm. as a child? I would say just a a good person, a person that was not involved with, um, you know, the wrong people or people in the streets because I had uncles or relatives that had already lived that lifestyle. And I see what it led to. But in my mind, I always kind of wanted to be, you know, the as a kid, you know, a, fire, a firefighter or a policeman or somewhere around that um, scope of work, but never did I think that I would actually start living the lifestyle of a gangbanger. Yeah. And what was the reaction even to, um, was there other family members that were speaking into your life at this time? Yes. Uh, my dear uncle, um, he was the one that I remember we went to uh, TJ. We would visit Tijuana a lot. We were up in a roof working and, you know, he sat me down and, and told me, you know, what you're doing is only going to lead you to places. And that was the first time I heard that kind of sermon where he said it's either jail or, or death. And he was speaking to my life. He spoke into my life that day and he said, you know what, you got to change. Um, look what you're doing to your family. These decisions are going to affect you in the long run. Just look at me and, and, and all the things that I've done in life and where I've gotten. Mm. So you mentioned things begin to get progressively worse. What would happen next and going yes. on in your life? So after juvenile hall, they sent me to a small school. I would like to say it was a school where there were people with criminal backgrounds, people that have gotten kicked out of other schools due to criminal activity. So uh, they sent me to this school and it was right there in the Logan Heights um, area. And so, you know, I was in a classroom with many people that smoked, people that um, drank, people that were deeply involved in, in gangs. And so by being there, it kind of just told me, you know what, this is who I am. This is, this is where I'm headed. There's no changing. But it was in that, in that moment where I met one of my dearest and, and closest friends where he was sitting on a, on, on a chair and he was on a desk writing on, on a piece of paper. And I noticed that he was kind of like making a, you know, waving his head up and down and writing and, and kind of just like rhyming. And I was like, you know, I've never seen that happen. So I got close to him and I said, hey man, like, you know, what, what exactly are, are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a rap song. I'm like, oh, okay. And he said, you know, do you, you, want me, you want me to spit it? You want to check it out? I say, yeah, let me, let me check it out. So he started rapping and I was like, well, that's pretty cool, you know, cause I never seen it live. I never seen someone writing a verses or writing a, a rap song. I've heard rap music, of course, but never got to experience um, that until that moment. I remember looking at him and I said to myself, this is something I can do. This seems pretty easy. Um, you know, I like the way this sounds. And so I started to write rap songs with him and I would invite him to my house, we would hang out, we would drink, and then we began writing songs. Little did we know that we were actually going to get into, you know, recording and setting up a studio. So we set up a studio in my room 
and we began to record mixtapes, one CD after another. And how old were you at this time? That time I was 14 and a half. Wow. 14 and a half. And we progressively began to make noise. We had our first show at San Diego High School at a school dance. And, you know, we were all dressed as rappers, you know, and had this huge crowd around us. And right then and there, I, I felt like, you know what, I, I want to become a famous rapper. I want to become known as one of the, you know, best Mexican Chicano rappers out there. So that's when I started, you know, getting more aggressive as far as uh, recording songs. And so we put out our first mixtape at the age of about 16 years old, where we already had more than about 10, 15 shows that we had around the area in San Diego. And in that time, you know, we were told that if you were to rap what you wrote, you were to live it. And so we knew that whatever we rapped about, we had to actually be real about it. You know, that's what the streets would tell us, be real. And so we began to go out there every weekend, partying, drugs, sex, um, you know, women, and, and we began intaking more and more drugs as time went by. And during that, during that time when we were out there hanging out and, um, you know, partying and doing shows, there was a moment where I remember at, at, our, at our home where my mom opened up to, to me and she had mentioned or brought up that she was dealing drugs. So that was around the age of 15 and a half where we got the news, myself and some of my sisters. And at that moment, I didn't know how to receive that. She just told me, you know, I'm ashamed of what I'm doing, but we need the income. And so I said, well, then, you know, then you keep doing what you're doing. I mean, what can we do about it? But what I began to do was I started to sell those drugs for her in school. And she specifically sold crystal meth. And so I began selling that and drug dealing, not only in school, but also in the streets. Keep in mind, during all this time, I'm still doing CDs. I'm still in the studio. I'm still rapping and, and we're getting out there. So at the age of 17, we joined this talent um, thing that they had in Florida. So my friend and I, we go out to Florida, 17 years old, you know, we go out there and we went to Florida with about 500 mixtapes. We already had 10 CDs, but we printed out all the copies we can. We had those old CD burners, you know, that would burn about five to 10 CDs at a time. And so we took this huge bag, luggage bag of just mixtapes. And we were out there in Florida handing them out to everyone. And there was a lot of ARs, a lot of managers that were seeking out talent. And so we were trying to make sure people knew about us. You know, we were taking pictures with everyone and, you know, going to every AR we can and, and letting people know, hey, this is who we are. We used to go by a rap name um, called uh, Black Flame. That was our, our rap crew. And little did we know that someone was actually going to get in contact with us. So when we come back home, about a few days later, a manager calls us and he says, you know what, I'm interested in, in your rap crew. I'm interested in, in investing in you guys. So at 17 years old, they give us that call and we started traveling to different states, doing shows, different um, you know, cities, went out to Texas, Houston, Dallas, um, Atlanta, went out to St. Louis and, and, and other um, states, Los Angeles, you know, moving um, um, in these areas where we thought, you know what, we, we never thought we could actually become famous people like this, you know. So we were living that rapper lifestyle at 17 years old. As we keep progressing as far as the music goes, there was things going on at home that I would, you know, share in my music because I wanted to get that out there to people to let them know this is what's going on in my life. I try to keep it as real as I can as far as my, my, my music went. And so there came a moment where I was in my last weeks of high school and, you know, I'm a senior. And in that week where it was my senior presentation, I'm a week away from graduating. Um, I'm sitting down because I had this senior presentation. I get a call from one of my aunts and she sounded, you know, hysterical. And she was like, Luis, they've 
arrested your mom. They got your mom. They got your sister. I, I remember just, you know, sitting down and I felt like my heart dropped to my stomach. I was like, what in the world? What are we going to do? Like, that's our mom. She's the one that holds the family together. She's the one that, you know, does everything for us. It's like, you know, I'm 17 years old and it was so unexpected because my aunt in the phone, she was saying, you know what? They got one of your sisters because she was with your mom, but now they're going after all your sisters in the school. So my mom got arrested. She was set up by the police. And when she gets arrested, they go and pick up all my sisters and they send them away, um, away from home, away from us to what is known as Polinsky here in San Diego. It's a program where they're sent, you know, children that have gone through this kind of situations or have been abandoned. When that happens, I was already going in a, in a stage of hate with one of my sisters. She was, she's the youngest one before me. I had this hate towards her because she left the house at about 13, 14 years old, and she got pregnant at a very, very early age. And so I, I had this hate against her, but when all this happened, and it, it kind of just, it was a, a moment where I guess you can say brought us together. And being there and, and seeing my sisters, uh, four of them just broken by this whole situation, I, I felt helpless. I felt, you know what, I, I, I need to help. I need to do something and, and intervene some, some way, right? So while my mom was in jail, I was out getting drunk, um, depressed, um, started feeling depression. I started feeling like, you know what, this music thing ain't going anywhere. What is, what is happening here? And my mom lasted in jail for about, about a week or so. She bailed out with the money that she actually saved up while she was drug dealing. And we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. So all that money just went into the lawyers, went into the courtrooms. By that time, we felt like, you know what, we, we can't do anything no more as far as the drug dealing went. This is where it, it meant to us we have to stop. They're, they're, I can't get involved in that no more. And so my mom, you know, had this long conversation with, with us, with the family, and, and, and she asked us to forgive her. And, you know, mom, you said, we said, well, what can we do about it? You know, it, it's something that you were doing and we got involved. And instead of stopping you, we were pushing for more because we became greedy. Um, you know, my first car was a BMW. So at that age, you could only start thinking, you know, you have all this money now because of what you're doing. And, and to me was um, huge because now I was not gonna see that income as far as music went. So when my mom um, gets out of jail, uh, I keep doing my thing with music. I graduate high school, but at 18 years old, my friend, my best friend that I did music for for four or five years joined the army. And so he told me that's it, um, I'm leaving. So when he leaves, I stay back and I keep doing music, but the thing that changed was that I got more involved in the streets. I started shaving my head. I started hanging around killers. I started hanging around people that were really deep in, in, the, in, in game banging. And so my music shifted from this, uh, I guess you can say, you know, rap where uh, it, it was uh, rap music in general, 50 Cent, Slim Shady, Eminem type of rap, and it shifted to this street gangster tough music, guns, shooting, and, and, and it changed. So when that change came, I started really game banging out there in a way where I was carrying a gun with me, in a way where I wanted to be a real hardcore gangster rapper. So I started getting tattoos, got a gang tatted on me and my, my street name tatted on me and um, began putting in work at the age of 18, in and out of jail, DUIs. But in the back of my head, I said, this is what I need. I need the streets to know who I am. And I need the streets to know that I keep it real, that this music is, you know, I do it, but behind this music is a real gangster. So 18, 19 years old, I'm, I'm involved in, in all the streets. And at the age of 20, I have my first son. And I thought that was going to change me. I thought having a, a son would change my mentality, but it didn't. 
And that relationship with my son's, with my first son's mom, it, it did not last very long because I, I was uh, a heavy cheater. I could not be with only one woman. I had multiple women, multiple sexual relationships with different women because that's just the lifestyle that I was living. And I couldn't change, I, I couldn't become something else because that's who I was, a gangster rapper that lived the lifestyle of, of, of a gangster rapper. So at 18 years old, um, you know, getting back into the jail stuff, that's where I actually got in prison one time when they told me they were gonna give me one year. And that was because of me hitting someone in a club with a glass bottle and I cut that person's eyes and they dropped the charges, but I was about to be in prison uh, for one year. But when I was in there, that's when I knew it was real because people knew who I was and they knew where I came from. And so I felt, you know what, I've made a name for myself now. So people knew what's up. At the age of 21, I've already put out by that time 15 mixtapes. I was doing shows now in different venues in downtown San Diego to the point where I opened up for DMX, I opened up for Twista, opened up for Bone Thugs and Harmony. And I was already kind of switching my, my rap style as well, trying to get the attention of, of even bigger managers or bigger ARs, you know. So when that change came with the music as well, and by that time, when I was um, 21 years old, by that time, I began to record with another friend of mine. And he's the one who actually helped change the way I was rapping. He said, you know what? The, the street rap is cool, but try to change into a more industrial, more music industry where it can hit and you can make money. And so we began recording together and we began, began to go to different clubs and, and they started playing my music in clubs. DJs uh, began to know who I was. And it got to the point where it reached a very big, famous, known Chicano rap label here in, in the U.S. that it's known as Low Profile Records. And then when it got to the hands of the CEO, he got a hold of me and kind of started investing in me little by little. He didn't take me all in all at once, but, but little by little, he, we hung out, we got to meet each other. When I got that, um, that contact with him, he began to pour into me of how to really become a Chicano rapper, how to become someone who can make it in a way where you win millions of dollars. Keep in mind, this man had been a millionaire. He had uh, many artists. So when I get that call where he wanted to really start investing in me, there was this time where doing that, uh, doing the, the age of 22 years old, I want to say, where we were at my grandma's house, we had lost our apartment and my mom moved in with my grandma and my stepdad at that time was living with us and my sisters. And it was a Saturday morning. I recall at 6 a.m. someone came knocking at our home and I didn't look outside. I was sleeping in the living room because at 6 a.m. we had no idea who could, who could be knocking at the door. So one of my sisters, they opened the door and ice rushed in the ICE police, and they took my mom. Um, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know why they came. So apparently the situation was that after my mom committed that felony, she had lost her green card. She was not a USA citizen, so when she loses, when she loses her green card, um, you know, I'm in contact with this record label, but everything at home went down. Um, that's where we really experienced like brokenness. Some of my younger sisters, they left the house and she went to jail for the second time. But this time um, they told her, you know what? You either get deported or you fight your case in jail. So my mom decided to fight her case in jail. And three months went by and she's in there locked up. I began touring with low profile records around that time. I was 22 years old. And when my mom is in there, she, she all of a sudden calls me. It was in a weekday. I was just about to go record and she, and she calls me and, and out of nowhere she says, 
Hijo, Cristo te ama. Son, God loves you. And, and I'm like, like, what? And she just repeated those words. She said, Cristo te ama. And I'm like, this woman is crazy. Like, I have no idea why she's telling me this, you know. And she just said, you know, Hijo Dios te puede cambiar. Uh, yo tuve un encuentro con Dios aquí en la cárcel. Y, y, y me siento una mujer diferente. And, you know, that God had changed her in jail. And, and she was experiencing this power of God. And I'm like, what in the world is wrong with you, you know? So every day... From that day forth, my mom would call me and just tell me, Jesus loves you. Um, Luis, seek God. Stop with the music. Stop uh, with the drugs, you know. And I was like, I have no idea what's wrong with you, mom, or what's going on. But it got to the point where I told her, mom, you need to shut up and stop calling me. I do not want to hear about God loving me. I don't want to hear about Jesus. Like, what I told her, do not call me anymore if you're going to be calling me to talk about Jesus. So my mom stopped calling me and she began to send me letters. <laughs> and in these letters, she would put psalms and, and verses and, and just telling me, you know, hijo, Dios tiene un propósito para tu vida. God has a purpose for your life. And I'm like, well, the only purpose I see is to become a millionaire, a rapper, famous rapper. That I, I didn't care about nothing else. So while she's in jail and going through that, that transition where she was fighting her case to stay here with us in, in the U.S., I was growing more famous. I was doing more tours with Low Profile Records. He had this, the CEO, he had actually taken me under his roof where I was staying with them and we were recording a lot. And, and you know, we began shooting videos and movies. There was all these, this talk about, you know, becoming the next big thing as far as a Chicano rapper went. You know, he gave me a name. He changed the street name I had. He gave me an actual name and he told me, you know what? You're going to be what I tell you to be now. So it was no longer just the rapper I wanted to be. Now I had to sell my image. I had to become exactly what I was being told to do and, and, and be the person who I was told, told to become. So during that time when I'm traveling with them, my mom's in jail, you know, I'm, I'm getting more famous, doing shows and, and, and places where we would have 9,000, 10,000 people, 15,000 fans where you would feel the stage shaking. And I'm like, you know what? I've, I've done it. Like, I'm, I'm here now. I got women. I got alcohol. I got everything I want. I'm getting paid to do music. Like, what more do I want? But little did I know that my mom was in jail praying for me. That's when I, I began to have encounters with God. I remember the first one that, that kind of threw me off and, and I knew, you know what, something's not right with me, something's not normal, was when we had one of the biggest shows in New Mexico. And when I got off that stage, I went into the hotel room and I had this big bag of cocaine. And I grabbed the bag, I grabbed the key, and you know, I'm about to sniff this Coke. And all of a sudden, inside of me, I hear someone asking me, what are you doing with your life? And I'm looking at the mirror, and I'm like, what in the world was that? You know, I'm like, what was that? And I put the Coke down, and I, I go and I sit down, and, and, and there was this little small table there in the hotel, and I'm sitting right there in that chair, and I'm like, why do I feel so depressed? You know, I, I just had the biggest show, but there was this emptiness, this, this loneliness that, that hit me like a cold bucket of water, just boom, I felt lonely, I felt depressed, I felt like, what's going on? I, I thought I had everything I wanted. When that happened, I, I knew that I was becoming an addict and, and a dependent of alcohol and drugs to make music. I could no longer just record to record. It's like I had to use drugs. I had to drink. I had to get drunk to write, to record. So during that whole year, I'm getting known, and my mom is fighting, in, in, fighting for her to stay here in the U.S. 
And during the last few months of that year, my mom calls me and tells me, you know what, Luis, I'm done trying to do things my way. I've prayed for God to do his will. And I didn't understand what my mom was talking about, but she said, I've prayed, he orado, para que la voluntad de Dios se haga. So three months later after she prayed and she told me that, my mom gets deported. When my mom gets deported, she made it just in time to see her brother pass away. Had an uncle, the one that spoke into my life, that one that had, you know, lived in the street lifestyle and told me, you know, you can change. He was a, a, a addicted to alcohol, so he got cirrhosis and he was told to not drink and he kept drinking. Unfortunately, after my mom gets out, about two, three weeks later, my uncle passes away. So she gets to see her brother die and he get, she gets to be at the burial. And then my grandma, she had gotten deported as well because of everything my mom had gone through and that kind of tied into her uh, situation. So my, my grandma leaves the U.S. and she goes to Mexico to stay in Tijuana, but she fell ill. So when my grandma falls ill, my uncle passes away and my, and my mom is there in the nick of time. That's when something sparked in my heart and my mind. I'm like, how are all these things falling together? Like, how, how is this happening? You know, they're, they're, this just can't be uh, a coincidence. And when my mom was in Tijuana, she began to invite me to church. I was still doing music. I was still doing drugs. I was still drinking. I was still sleeping around. I was still, you know, addicted to pornography and all these other things. But when my mom would invite me, she would say, Andale, hijo, acompáñame, come with me to church. And I would say, fine, mom, I'll go with you. So the first time I go to church, you know, the pastor's preaching and I felt like everything was towards me. When we leave the service, I walk up to my mom and I said, what is wrong with you? Why did you tell this pastor all about my life? Like I was mad, like upset. And I was like, why would you be a chismosa? I told her and go and tell this pastor everything I'm doing, everything I've been through. And she's like, hijo, calm down. Um, I did not tell the pastor anything. This is just my second time here. I do not know the pastor like that. And I say that, well, that's weird. After that, time of going to church, I would go every other Sunday with her. And the second time I went, I remember the pastor preaching um, about the love of Christ and, and about coming to the Lord. And he raised his hand and he said, does anyone want to accept Jesus in their heart? And I'm like, you know, this, you see this gangster just in the crowd of people. And I'm like, well, what can happen if I walk up and accept Jesus, right? As my savior. So I, I, I walk up to the, the altar. And when I'm there, he just raises his hand. And even before he touched me, I just fell to the floor. And I'm like, what just happened? You know, I'm, my eyes were closed, but I, I, I just fell to the floor. And I'm looking around like, this is embarrassing. Like, what are people going to think of me, you know? And after that encounter with God, things started moving in the music and in the whole rap, the rap game that I was in. When the CEO decides to move from the house he had, he wanted to move into a bigger house to actually provide me with an official like room and, you know, have everything there as far as recording in the studio and he wanted to expand. He told me, I need you to go back to San Diego and just stay there for a while until this, this you know, this happens and we move out and we move into the next house. And I said, okay, that's cool, man, you know, no, no problem. So when I come back to San Diego, my mom's in Tijuana. That's when I began to feeling, began to feel like, um, like seeking the spiritual. I don't want to say I began seeking God because it wasn't that. I just began to feel like I need to read spiritual books, you know, see, see what all this is all about. There's these religions and God and all these. So I started reading books and you know, I'm still doing the music thing and I'm still going out and, and doing, you know, drugs and alcohol. But I said to myself, I, I, you know, the spiritual thing is kind of it's kind of interesting. So during that time when I'm back in San Diego, uh, my mom tells me that she was going to get baptized. 
I go to her baptism and I went to her baptism. I was coked out. I was drunk, but I went and I seen her get baptized. And then from then, from there, my grandma, who was a, a Catholic, you know, that's all she believed in and all she grew up with. She gave her life to the Lord and then she gets baptized at our TJ home because she couldn't walk. So they brought, the brothers brought this pool, this small pool. They baptized my grandma. And I'm like, you know what? This is, this is crazy what's going on at home and, and with the family. So when I'm in San Diego and I'm reading different books, Russell Simmons and just different spiritual books, there was a day where I found myself alone in the house and I was sweeping the kitchen when all of a sudden I, I looked up I looked up to the roof and I, I, I did not know how to pray. Never had I prayed to God, but I just said, you know what? I'm tired. I said, I'm, I'm tired of this lifestyle. I'm tired of not really becoming like this famous rapper. Like every time I feel like I'm going somewhere, I just feel like, you know, you close doors on me and I don't know what you want from me. Those were my exact words. I don't know what you want from me. And in that moment, I, I, I go to the refrigerator and there was this huge bottle of wine and I started drinking the wine and I hear a voice inside of me saying, don't eat or drink for three days. Don't eat or drink for three days. And I, when, I, when I hear that, I'm like, huh? Don't eat, don't drink for three days. I did not know anything about fasting. No one ever told me or read the Bible to me about fasting. And so I went into this three-day insane fast. And the first day, the CEO calls me. It was in the afternoon. He called me. At that time, I had picked up a Bible that my mom had given me, this old King James Bible. And I began just, you know, skipping through it. And when he calls me, he's talking to me and telling me, homie, what's going on with you? We got music to do. We got money to make. You know, you haven't been in touch with me. Um, you know, what's up with you? And when he says that, I'm about to answer him. But he says, wait, wait. And he asked me, what are you reading? And in my mind, I'm like, how does this guy know what I'm doing? He's like, what are you reading, homie? Because your voice sounds different. What are you reading? And I said, ah, man, like just some books, you know, that's, you know, but he kept hammering exactly. He wanted to know what I was reading. And that time I did not know the devil was at work. I did not know how real the devil was. And so when he told me that, I said, you know what, Matt? I, I don't feel like talking right now. We'll talk some other time. So we began to crash heads that day. And in the second day, I was getting invited to go out with girls, to go clubbing. I said, no, I'm going to stay. The third day, my sisters invited me to the beach. They had all these snacks and all this food and pizzas. I'm like, no, I can do it, you know. And in my mind, I'm thinking at 12 o'clock, I'm going to turn this fast in today and, and, and it, it's done. That's it. When I, when I go in to take a shower at 11 p.m., I'm in the shower and I closed my eyes and, and I just began to kind of just meditate, uh, you know, just thinking to myself, all the things I've been through, everything I've done, when all of a sudden I felt the presence of a person in front of me. And I can see myself through the eyes of this individual and, and I could not open my eyes, but I can sense this person right there just standing. And then a voice again inside of me says, it's now or never. It's now or never. And I'm like shaking. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. When I opened my eyes, I, I, I prayed, you can say, and I said, you know what? Like, if, if this is you calling me, God, like, if, if you want me to get baptized and give my life to you and, and leave the music and the women and the pornography and, 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 and the drugs and the all, if you really want me to do these things, show me, like confirm to me that it is you that's really calling me because I don't, I don't understand what's going on. Three days after that fast, I got woken up by a voice, but this time it wasn't 
an internal voice. It wasn't in my mind. It wasn't in my heart or an internal voice. I, I heard an audible voice. I was sleeping. It was 2.30 a.m. when I woke up. And I remember because I remember seeing the, the clock, an alarm clock right in front of me. But a voice woke me up and this voice said, heaven and earth will become one. Heaven and earth will become one. And I heard that voice so clear on the left side of my ear that when I woke up, there was no one around me, nobody there. And, and I'm like, what was that? Like, what just happened? Like, I, I heard it so clearly and it, it struck me. Luis, you asked for a confirmation. You asked me to show you it was me. When that happened, I rose up from the bed and I pointed up and I said, from now on, I am yours. I am yours. The next day I get up in the morning, I go to the bathroom and I began confessing my sins. Like It was so weird because I just remember being in there and I said, you know what, God, like I need help. Can't stop drinking. I can't stop coking out. I can't stop smoking weed. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm addicted to women, you know, and I, I just began to speak and there was no one there, you know, but I began to just let it out and say, I need help. I confess all these things before you. The day after was my time to go to church and accompany my mom. So I go to church and, you know, the, the, the music was just so beautiful. The, the, um, the worship team, they were just praising God with, you know, all their heart. You could just tell there was just something different in that service. And when they were calling people to the altar, you know, I stayed back, you know, all prideful, like, no, I don't, I don't got to walk up there anymore. Like, I'm good. Um, when everybody came back from the altar call, I go to the front by myself. And I remember lifting up my hands for the very first time. And I kept my hands up. And that moment, while my hands were up, I felt, I felt um, a wind. I felt someone blowing from the top of my head all the way down. Like this wind just, it was as if, as if someone just grabbed my heart and, and, and pulled it out and shoved a new heart in my chest. And I didn't understand what was going on, but after 26 years, I felt this peace. I felt this overwhelming love, like a brand new kid. It was as if something like new had just changed in me like I had no idea what had happened. And when I felt that love, that peace, I, I just felt like I was floating, <laughs> like, like I was in the clouds and I'm like, whoa, you know, like, what was that? Go back to my seat and I didn't, I didn't think I can share that with anyone at that moment. I was like, this is, this is scary. You know, but I felt this change in me just so fast, man. Like all the hate, all the violence, all, all the anger, everything I had, like within seconds, milliseconds, it, it just went away. And I knew then and there something had changed in my life. Something had happened where I just knew I had that certainty that I would not be that person I was anymore. Louise, what was the reaction of the people around you as, as you're encountering God in this way? I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> when I, sh I shared the story first with one of my aunts who was actually uh, the first Christian in our family. And when I shared what had happened with me, she told me, don't tell anyone keep this to yourself. People are not going to believe you. 
you know, when, and when I told her we're at this party and everyone was drinking and I, had, I didn't feel like drinking, but when I told her, she's like, you know, if you tell people, they're going to look at you different. And so I kept it a secret until, you know, God started putting in my heart. It was time to, to share what he had done. And what was the, the reaction from people as you began to share this? Uh, even from your mom, you know, her praying for you and interceding for you. What, what was their reaction? When I had that encounter, I remember a day after that service, God began to wake me up at 3 a.m. for two weeks consecutively. And I was waking up and, and reading the Word of God, and I, I read the Gospels, and I would cry, and I would say, can't believe Jesus loves me this much. And, you know, but I, I just began to fill myself with the Word of God, and, and I'm just a brand new creature in Christ, you know, a brand new child. But I, I had this sense of just prayer and, and, and reading. So when that started happening, I started to share the news with my friends first. And so I would go to, the, to some of the old homies. And I remember the first house I visited, I gathered everyone, him and his family, his mom, his dad, and I told them, hey, God changed me. And I told them how it happened. And, you know, we would, I would just feel the presence of God just like filling the rooms where I would go to. And people would begin to cry and they would begin to tell me their life stories and everything they've been through. And I'm like, I don't know how to, you know, minister to you right now, but all I can tell you is that Jesus loves you. And when I tell my mom, she was just like in awe. Like, you know, she was like, I can't believe like the hardest one of them all is now a believer. Like she, she was, she didn't know how to, how to, she didn't know how to react. She was just like so amazed by my conversion. Family could not believe it. Friends could not believe it. I mean, you had this rapper that had it going that was like this close to really becoming a famous Chicano rapper to all of a sudden he leaves it all and begins to follow Jesus. What happened with the music? Because now, I mean, you were still, you know, involved, but what happened after coming to Christ and following Jesus? Afterwards, um, the CEO, I'm going to hold of me and, you know, I, I let him know exactly what had happened and how my life had changed. And I remember publishing a picture of me differently dressed. Um, and I remember receiving a message from a girl in New York that I had not met personally, but she messaged me and she said, I see something different in your eyes. I don't know what it is, she said, but whatever it is, keep going. Whatever it is. And I'm like, she has no idea what, what just happened, you know, but... I left it all, um, the studio I had, all the music I had recorded, everything. I just, you know, I, I got rid of it. I didn't feel like I had to go back to, to making music or after that encounter, there was just no way of going back to that lifestyle anymore. Mm. You mentioned earlier, Luis, that, you know, there was a realization moment where you felt empty. Mm-hmm. How did Jesus fill that emptiness as he came into your life? Did he fill that emptiness? Oh, yes. Um, that emptiness, I believe, had a lot to do with how I grew up. I was always chasing after a dad figure. I, I, I wanted that love of a father to son. I wanted to feel the arms of a dad. And, you know, so that, that, that made me feel that emptiness, that made me feel like seeking things that may fill that emptiness, you can say, as far as, you know, the alcohol. I mean, I became a heavy drinker and I just felt that whatever, all these things that I'm doing or that I did could fill that void. When I had that encounter in the altar, I felt this joy. I felt the, the right word to use here is, is satisfaction. I felt like complete, like if Everything I ever felt like I've needed, I had it. Like in that moment, I had the Lord in my heart and, and it was enough to make me feel 
satisfied. It was enough to make me feel happy and 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 in peace with not only myself but with others. And and I felt this love, like you know, coming from someone that has so much hate. There was this 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 love for people that I was like, I didn't know. I didn't even know that kind of love existed. So I can say that Jesus filled that void completely and made me feel loved. He made me feel what it is like to have a father. Luis, what happened with your uh, earthly father? When you mentioned earlier, obviously with the abuse and what you experienced as a child. Yes. um, How is your relationship with him today? Do you have any relationship with him? So the crazy part about it is that right before I started going to church with my mom, I started searching or Googling my dad to see exactly where he was at or what he was up to. A lot of my music, I would share with the world how much I hated him. I would share with the world that if I were to see him, I was going to shoot him. If I were to see him, I was going to put hands on him. One day I... (laughs) I was drinking and I began Googling my dad and I found him on YouTube. And the crazy part about it is that when I found him, he was with this uh, friend of his and they were recording um, like a live video of him singing. I was used to him singing. I I had seen him sing before. And, you know, more than 20 years had passed and I had not seen this man. So I hear the song he was singing and it was not a worldly song. It was a Christian song. So I hear my dad playing the guitar and and start singing about Jesus and about God. I'm like, this is weird, you know? So I I found him on Facebook. I got a hold of him and he only told me, hijo, estoy orando por ti. I'm praying for you. I did not know my dad had already given his life to Christ. So after my dad hears what happens to me, he invites me to his house And I showed up to his house as if nothing ever happened. Like there was just that love in me, you know, and and he asked me, forgive me, son, for all that I did to you, to your sisters, to your mom. I'm sorry. And I recall my exact words. I said, dad, you've already been forgiven. Like I don't feel that in my heart anymore. So I just I hugged them and, and I told them how much I loved them. And since then, we've been in touch. Um. You know, we hang out, and he's a huge, huge part of my life now. Wow. Luis, who is Jesus to you? Jesus has become my everything, my my friend, my counselor. He's become that person that I can go to no matter what. I believe that I am nothing without him, that I need him on a daily basis. I need to be with him, have communion with him. And he's been the one that gives me a reason to live. He's done so much that I just feel like I owe him everything, everything I own, everything I have. And so he's just become that to me where I can't go a day without being in his presence. Luis, for anybody that is relating to your life before Jesus, everything from the drugs to the gangs, um, and is watching your testimony right now, maybe is finding themselves in that same position, what's a word of encouragement that you can give to that person that's watching right now? You could come to the Lord no matter the condition that you're in. Even if you are in a situation where you find yourself addicted to any of the things that I mentioned, God is so loving that he will accept you just as you are. You can come to him and present that stronghold to him and let him know that that you need help. So I encourage anyone watching that is addicted to any of the things such as drugs, alcohol, pornography, that's addicted even to becoming, you know, someone famous or wants to be a millionaire so bad, you can come to the Lord and you can let him know exactly 
what you're going through. He is not angry at you. He's not waiting to judge you. He's not in the throne looking to condemn, to condemn you, but he's just waiting for you to come to him. So I want to motivate anyone that's listening to come to Christ and he will accept you. He will change you. He will transform you and he will restore your life. Luis, for, for the young men um, that have a father who wasn't present in their life and are dealing with that resentment, that hatred towards their father, that hatred that you once had, uh, what's a word of encouragement that you can give to that uh, person that's watching, either man or woman? After having a long talk with my dad and, you know, he explained to me why he left and he explained to me um, his childhood, I was able to see why he was the kind of man that he was, not to justify what he did, but he also went through a childhood where his dad didn't show him any love, where his dad wouldn't hug him or, or be there for him the way he wanted to, even though his dad was around. He told me that he only recalls one time really having that kind of father-son love moment in his entire life. So I want to tell that person to first give them an opportunity because we may not know exactly what they went through and why they are the way they are and to forgive them, to find it in their hearts, to forgive their dads. And if you are that person, sometimes it will take courage on your part to reach out to your dad and to let him know, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you. Maybe even, you know, I want to hang out. I, I want us to end this, this separation between us because God is able to intervene in a situation like that. And he's able to restore your relationship with your parents, even if it's with your mom or your dad. God can do the most supernatural and, and, and work in a miraculous way in the hearts of individuals. Luis, any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? God did so much in my life after I gave him my heart. Got baptized in 2014 in August. After that, I began to seek the filling of the Holy Spirit and I was filled with the Holy Spirit a month after my conversion after being saved. And I began to go in this deep, deep intimacy with the Lord as far as prayer goes. Seasons of fasting, seasons of spending hours, hours praying, hours studying His Word. And there was this passion in me to seek God. And I wanna encourage every believer out there to be a God chaser. The more closer you get to the Lord, you will not only experience His presence more, but the Bible says if you abide in Him, He will abide in you, and that is a promise. And you become a Christian that produces fruit. And when God started to produce fruit in my life, little by little, He would bless me with the things that the devil took when I was in the world. He gave me a beautiful wife three years after being saved. He gave me a ministry. I was ordained about six years into being saved as a minister of the gospel. And now I am able to travel to different cities and, and share my testimony. And he gave me also now a newborn, a, a, another son. And he's blessed me and done so much. And I wanna encourage all those that are listening that God can do that and more. He can restore the things you've lost. He can bless you and your family, and He could give you the desires of your heart when you remain faithful to Him, when you follow Him and obey His Word. And so anyone that is listening, you may be going through a season where you maybe don't see the promises as you would want to, but persist, 
keep going forward, keep moving forward with the Lord and he will strengthen you and he will help you to become one of his disciples that would preach the gospel and be a blessed Christian. Lastly, Luis, could you just pray for the people who are watching on the other side of the screen? Yes. Let us pray. Lord, you know every single heart for you are the creator of all things. You know the person that has listened to this testimony more than that person knows themselves. You know how broken they are. You know the challenges they are facing. You know exactly what they are going through, the strongholds that they've been fighting, the demons that have come against them. I pray for you, Lord, to move in a special way in their lives. I pray for you to pour out your spirit upon them in a way that they receive deliverance and salvation, God. May you heal the brokenhearted the way you healed me when I was lost and confused and felt lonely. If there is someone that is watching that feels that loneliness in their hearts, I pray that you would fill that void, Lord, that you may help them truly believe that you can satisfy every single need that they have and that you are willing to accept them no matter the condition, no matter the sin, that you can accept them and wash them with your precious blood. I pray that you would tug the hearts of those listeners that have gone through struggles, Lord, as children, maybe as young adults that need a touch of your presence. Father, save them and show them that you are a healer, that you are faithful, that you are loving and kind and caring, Lord that every individual that has watched this testimony know that you are a God that is present, a God that listens and is interested in reconciliating himself with them. I pray for reconciliation and I pray, oh God, for your spirit to move in their families, in their homes, Lord, and for your presence to do the impossible in their hearts. Grant them a new heart. Grant them a pure heart. And that everyone that receives you may walk in faith and may walk in obedience, Lord. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.